Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that says it doesn't believe in gestures, but still always makes the wanker sign when Prime Minister's questions is on the telly. I'm an increasingly tired tin and do yep, and this week, as the Chancellor and Pinky without the brain Rishi Sunak has announced a cash lifeline to the arts sector, will he just keep it in the Cabinet, which is currently full of clowns endlessly creating farcical drama for the entire nation? Don't worry, it seems everyone is absolutely certain we're about to be saved by Rishi Sunak. You know, in the same way if you've been held hostage in a cellar, it's the kidnapper who once forgot to give you your daily punch in the eye that's definitely the nice one. Definitely. On Wednesday this week, the Chancellor will announce what was going to be an emergency budget, but it's now just a summer economic update. A worrying sign when even the title has had to have cutbacks. So far, it's expected that Sunak will raise the threshold for paying stamp duty because there's nothing like boosting the economy by making it more affordable for people to buy houses that haven't actually been built. That's definitely where the emergency help needs to go, right? You know, ignore that the number of people in rent arrears has doubled. What about everyone who felt their garden wasn't big enough for their horse to do laps around during the first lockdown, so they need a massive one for round two? There will also be money for firms to take on traineeships so those young people desperate for work can do some of it completely unpaid. That's what they need, right? Just to get out of the house and have somewhere different to not afford to eat. Maybe it's because Rishi Sunak is married into a billionaire family that it's hard for him to remember just how money works, but it does strike me that he's the sort of man that would look at the chicken, fox and grain puzzle and conclude that actually what the farmer needs is lower rates on a super yacht he can't afford, while giving a big corporate chicken farm cheaper rates to start up in the area, saving the farmer the hassle of having a job in the first place. By the time you hear this, you might know if the rumours are true that every adult will be given £500 to spend on companies worst hit by the virus, which I'm assuming will somehow only include Weatherspoons, Richard Desmond's Northern and Shell, JCB and the company housing secretary and conscious loofer Robert Jenrick will set up to buy his 15th home. Of course, the big announcement, though, is a long overdue £1.57 billion for gig venues and theatres, which can't be sniffed at, but until details are announced, it's hard not to assume that Rishi Sunak will spend all of it on having six Royal Variety performances a year and the rest on those dickheads who pretend to be statues or wear a shit Yoda mask in Trafalgar Square because he finds them really clever and funny. 
Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden, like if you sculpted an entire person out of acne, said that the money won't save every job, so fingers crossed he's talking about his. When asked if pantomimes would happen later this year, Dowden said they will if they can, as Panto has all the things we love, such as kids screaming. Right, so that's probably why the Conservatives have had to finally support the arts, as they won't get any of that at their parties anymore now that Ghislaine Maxwell has been arrested. But this is a world-leading fund for the arts sector, though, unless you count all the other countries that beat us to it, gave a lot more to support the industry and all of that before any of their theatres had to close. But apart from those, it is definitely world-leading what this government are doing now. And it's definitely world-leading, you know, if it's helpful for all your ideology, if you pretend that past Britain's shores, there's absolutely nothing else there. I mean, why look at global coronavirus death tolls that are much smaller than ours when it's clear they're only tiny on account of no one else existing? Why see how other countries are done a track and trace system successfully if you can't contact creations of your imagination. Not even there, why would you bother? There you go, that's better. And now, as you can see, our government definitely does, doesn't does stop world leading at everything that it does, apart from oh, Scotland, who gave money to the arts before us did and had lower death rates. Oh, shit. Okay, close in again, everyone, until we have just a six metre radius around Westminster, and there we go, we're world leading once again. Aha. It's much like the Prime Minister and upset bag of salad Boris Johnson and his new New Deal, which appears to be new in the way a reboot of a show you never liked in the first place is new, even though they've replaced the only decent cast members and removed anything at all you might have liked about it. In his big speech last week, Johnson stood at a podium with Build, Build, Build scrawled across it like a knockoff Lego conference and said that the government's coronavirus plan had gone really well in terms of building temporary hospitals that no one used and then said that people should clap for wealth creators, capitalists and financiers, which doesn't seem quite right as I thought we only clapped for the NHS because the government refused to give them any money. My worry is all the people who would clamp for financiers have probably got so much cocaine residue on their fingers that the applause would cause such a large white cloud it would lead to a national bullshitting epidemic. Ah, wait, maybe it's already happened. Johnson launched a raft of things that had already been announced earlier in the year, but now will happen less or more slowly. Oh, don't worry, the 40 new hospitals will still be built. It's just that now they'll count each room in a hospital as its own building. There's a new affordable house building programme that is just like the one announced in March, but with less money and three more years to do it in. Johnson blamed the British state for failing to build enough homes. And I wondered if you think that's now how he refers to himself when coming to terms with his mistakes. Oh, the British state shook everyone's hands again. Oh, damn the British state for disappearing for weeks on end. Oh, stupid, stupid, bad, naughty British state for accepting holidays from lobbyists. I mean, it would explain how he's able to mentally separate himself from all the stuff he's done. He's definitely a state too, or at least in one, looking more and more every day like a cake left out in the rain. Though apparently he has now had his hair cut, and I'm guessing all of the cuts went from the bottom and they left the top 1% alone, or even somehow added to it. This is the news that we get reported about the Prime Minister now, haircuts and that, instead of any sort of querying as to why his new deal isn't new, or if how, as he said on Friday, he refuses to take a knee alongside the Black Lives Matter protests because he doesn't do gestures, what on earth does he think all the things he does every single other day are? Or if he's even aware of who he is, the absolute gesture king? Is it a Gollum-like situation where an alternate Boris Johnson personality appears and suddenly he's stuck on a zip wire waving the Union flag like someone's strung up a pig, or pretending to do press-ups for a newspaper front page making it look like he toppled over from the weight of his own ego and now can't get back up and then before he knows it oh he's back to being boris again and oh british state why you do the gestures again 
I mean, for Mr No Gestures, it's a shame no one warned him the day after his comment about Downing Street being lit up blue and having one single candle to remember over 40,000 coronavirus victims. I'm not sure they could have done any less unless they'd asked the man a single magpie would avoid, Chris Grayling, to try and fail to light it 14 times before spending £8 million getting someone who's never seen a candle before to do it. Couldn't they at least have had one candle for every person who died? Or was that too risky in case it made number 10 look like the everything is fine meme that they're trying desperately to avoid? Johnson must have been furious as that sounds like exactly the sort of gesture he probably doesn't like doing, especially as some of the people that died were also black and it would have required him remembering they existed. But it gets worse. The next day, Mr Pro Gesture Critic joined in with a nationwide clap for the NHS's 72nd birthday. You know, like how a supervillain might sarcastically applaud the hero for surviving the first of its many traps. Why didn't anyone tell him it was a gesture? Or was the Prime Minister led outside and told there was an invisible seal balancing a ball on his head and he got all excited and then they took the pictures? If the Prime Minister had known it was just a gesture, he'd probably have avoided it. I mean, what else does he need to do for the NHS? By making sure pubs were open on Saturday, the place where, according to the Texas Medical Association, have the worst risk of catching COVID-19, what better present for the National Health Service than by making them feel really needed and wanted, or at least know they will be in about two weeks' time? The lockdown has been eased off its hinges and people started boozing from 6am on what the Prime Minister kept calling Super Saturday, probably because like many of the caped hero films, it's exactly the same Covid origin story that we've seen several times before. The early start time was allowed to try and stop many from opening at one minute past midnight, because if there's one thing you can't keep a Brit from, it's drinking until you don't care about the facts. Areas like Soho in London were rammed full of revellers because we all know, or made up while drunk, coronavirus can't infect your blood if it's mostly alcohol. Probably. Maybe. We'll find out soon. Of course, all of this is the people being irresponsible as the government definitely did warn people to be careful on the Super Saturday that they had to all go out on. With the Prime Minister telling people not to blow it, a confusing message when partnered with the Chancellor encouraging people to eat out to help out. Johnson also attended a Weatherspoons pub on Saturday with Home Secretary and Walking Spike Strip Pretty Patel, Medical Waste in a Suit Michael Gove and Weatherspoons boss Tim Martin, a man who looks like Rockbiter from Neverending Story, was tenderised using a car wash. The four of them posed for several photos like an animatronic version of the Chamber of Horrors and honestly I can't think of a better pub deterrent than that. Anyone who says Johnson hasn't done enough clearly doesn't realise how much those four, like the axis of primeval, would cause people to social distance like absolutely nothing else. On Sunday, the Police Federation chairman said it was crystal clear that drunk people cannot distance, which isn't true, as whenever I'm pissed I always make it home so quickly I don't even remember the journey. So obviously it's all the public's fault if there's a second wave, in the same way that 20,000 people dying in care homes is care homes' fault, says the Prime Minister, and not at all the government saying COVID-19 patients could be discharged back from hospitals to care homes even if tested positive. But then you see, maybe the care staff should have barricaded the doors and allowed their positive testing patients to just die in the front garden. Actually, based on how the Home Office policy works, that probably would have been the government's preferred advice. According to Johnson, too many care homes didn't follow procedures, which is probably because there weren't any and the government mostly forgot about them. He has acknowledged, though, that social care is in need of more funding, but I'm worried it'll never appear and then he'll just blame the sector for not using it. In Leicester, they held the safest pub opening policy on Saturday by not opening any as they're currently under a local lockdown, having apparently 10% of the positive cases in the country, which is selfish of them, but of course if they shared it round, it would be worse. Local police weren't given any guidance on the area that needed to be on lockdown until after Health Secretary and nervous scallop Matt Hancock made the announcement last week. 
He obviously decided to give the virus a head start and will no doubt now chase after it like in The Fugitive and I hope to see Hancock standing somewhere in Glenfield shouting about searching every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse and doghouse in the area only to find that they're all Robert Jenricks and give up. The daily toll and daily infections are now at a real low, which is brilliant news, though we also won't really know what that's based on anymore, as the daily stats of people tested will no longer be revealed by the Department of Health, as apparently the same person may get retested, so instead they'll just show the overall figures so it looks like they've done a lot more. I'm sure that next they'll stop publishing the daily death toll as they've realised they were accidentally counting whole swathes of people they didn't care about, and it's just nicer if the numbers look smaller, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I'm starting to miss the daily briefings that we had from March through to June because it was always such a confidence boost to see someone being even more useless during lockdown than I was. However, White House-style press briefings will be introduced in October, though it's not stated if it's White House-style in terms of the format that the US do it in or if it'll just be more endless bullshit like the ones from US President and flatulent grapefruit Donald Trump. These will apparently be hosted by an experienced broadcaster, which based on the level of the cabinet's expertise in their jobs means it'll either be racist whisperer Darren Grimes or a seagull strapped to a loud hailer. A list of countries that will be exempt from quarantine for travellers arriving back to England from them has been listed, but Portugal isn't on there, despite having seven times fewer Covid cases than the UK. It is, however, the second-ranked country in the world for moral freedom and 18th for social progress, so maybe the British government are terrified that people will go there and come back infected with actually good ideas about how a society should run. One place that isn't on the list is the US, but contents of an old painting you found in a shed in the woods, Nigel Farage, was boasting about being at the pub as soon as doors opened on Saturday, less than two weeks after his trip to the US for Trump's rally, meaning that he breached quarantine rules. You'd think he'd be a bit more concerned about bringing over foreign bodies and giving them access to British homes. Similarly, the Prime Minister's father and mug duvet, Stanley Johnson, dodged regulations in order to fly to Greece. As well as the whole one rule for them horror, this is also the man who said most of the British public were too thick to spell Pinocchio, but seems to have clearly misread Cretan Islands. The Prime Minister repeatedly refused to comment on his dad flouting the rules, and I don't think it's fair that we assume it's like father, like son. As I mean, when has Boris Johnson ever fled abroad to the detriment of the country? Oh, oh yeah. Three quarters of British businesses are cutting jobs, including many high street retailers such as John Lewis, who are outsourcing their IT sector to an Indian company. I'm guessing this year's Christmas ad will involve Father Christmas hiring cheaper elves in the Faroe Islands to make all the toys, telling his lot they're now redundant as an acoustic version of Hello Goodbye is sung by edited stock footage. Ministers have pledged to double job centre staff, which will probably be most of the jobs they'll be able to advertise within them, and you'll be able to apply for a job being able to tell people to apply for jobs. What won't help businesses is the very high likelihood that we'll now be leaving the EU at the end of the year without any deal whatsoever, as the deadline to extend the transition period has gone and the British government are trying their best not to agree anything. Johnson said an Australia deal, which is the new slang for no deal on account of how it'll turn British business on its head, would be fine and said that it's a very good option actually, which is quite a change of tune from his boasting of an oven-ready deal just last year. Which is definitive proof he has absolutely no idea how to use an oven and there's every chance the Prime Minister put the deal in there in December but never turned any dials and can't figure out why it's gone cold and it's obviously the EU's fault. Who knows, maybe last minute there'll be a new deal or a world-beating plan to pull everything together by doing exactly the same as the last deal or insisting there's no other countries to trade with anyway. In other news, the UK is imposing sanctions on 49 people and organisations behind the worst human rights abuses of recent years, but there's no news on when the Home Office or the company that did the Grenfell cladding will be added to the list. 
The British government have said that up to 3 million Hong Kong residents will be offered the chance to settle here after China pushed through their frightening new anti-protest law. I think it's really great that all those Hong Kong citizens can escape being persecuted for wanting to live in their own country and seek refuge here where they'll probably be persecuted for being from somewhere else. I joke, this country doesn't compare to the scary methods China used just yet, as their police upsettingly fired water cannons on protesters, whereas our Prime Minister had to sell his at a massive loss. China has warned the UK not to interfere with Hong Kong, and also about deciding against the contract with Huawei for our 5G network, which is odd as you think breaching international laws would make them want less coverage. And lastly, former Prime Minister and always a Jurassic Park promo card cutout attached to a pallet truck, Theresa May, got very angry in the Commons at Michael Gove for the political security advisor appointment that happened last week, saying that pencil dots on some mumps, David Frost, has absolutely no expertise. And that is incredible. I can't imagine being so shit that you make Theresa May have emotions. Meanwhile, Labour leader and actually my hair is the first wave, Keir Starmer, has vowed to take unconscious bias training, though I'm not sure from its name if that'll actually improve him or just make him even more skilled at what he's racist about in order to persuade former UKIP voters back to Labour. On a trip to a brewery, Starmer held a Barnard Castle eye test beer as a dig at the PM special advisor and 4chan Squidward Dominic Cummings, because you know that's easier than calling for him to resign. It does depress me that the current state of opposition in this country is a man who manages to even make the hold my beer meme rubbish. Word purple brewers, how is things? Uh, isn't it sad that I can't even be happy about the government's arts funding announcement yet? But it is impossible to take any of their announcements as good news when what's expected is that they'll spend 1.57 billion on the Royal Opera House to buy Richard Desmond a magical box he can sit in and everyone else will get told they can work for free using their excellent projection skills as human air ventilation, breathing in potential germs on crowded transport. I'm sure, I'm sure that is what's going to happen. I had quite a few people get angry with me uh, online. What? People angry on social media. Weird, isn't it? Um, and they were getting angry about how no money the government announced will ever be enough for the chattering classes, um, which I know chattering classes is a derogatory term, but it does suit comedians very, very well. Um, it also made me wonder that some people must just see these announcements about things being world-leading and then believe it. I mean, imagine how easy uh, it is to exist if you work like that. Also, where do those people live? As I I reckon come the purge they will be the simplest to scam for cash uh, and I want to get on that before it's trendy um, someone else asked me why the arts should get money when it would be better going to people to go and see the arts as it's unaffordable for most and that is a weird one as they're kind of right because theatre especially can be crazily expensive mostly because to uphold all costs in an often poorly funded industry um, they have to have really expensive tickets and then that means that it makes it for the rich and then the rich also vote in the Conservatives who then continue to not fund the theatre industry properly and then that makes it for the rich and then blah 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 the never ending story but at the same time uh, most of us idiots who work in entertainment aren't Benedict Cumberbatch and can't afford to live most of the time let alone now and there's also all the important staff at venues like front of house tech staff cleaners security etc 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 and if none of them are supported and the venues go under then it won't be for anyone at all and you have three million unemployed Um, it is also baffling that people think it's a competition oh the government can't fund anyone so we may as well let you drowned. The reasons they can't fund everyone are because they've underfunded everything for 10 years so as far as I'm concerned, they can work this shit out. Until we have a no deal of course and we have to replace currency with fighting and tribal warfare. Basically, give me the 1.7 billion uh, 1.57 billion pounds uh, Oliver Dowden, the man who I'm certain thinks culture is watching repeats of men behaving badly and occasionally going ooh at a printy scene in Ikea. Give it to me and I'll spend it on good things and also some crisps. Um, worth saying as well, uh, what we news this week, go back through old episodes. Uh, if you haven't heard them, one 
Dan Rebellato from a couple of weeks ago is all about saving the theatre industry. Um, and then uh, one from quite some time ago, you can Google it, uh, was with uh, Lee Kobai, um, a journalist who lives in Hong Kong. It was all about her attending the first protests, um, which is obviously depressingly relevant. Again, um, do give that a listen. Ah, oh, isn't it depressing uh, that the world has gone through a major event like coronavirus where everyone's been affected? And rather than us all say, hey, what we should do is use this as an opportunity to reform and change all the structures that cause pain and suffering into something more positive. Everyone instead's gone, oh, well, you were shit anyway. Get out of my way. I want to vomit on a beach while getting a tattoo saying lick my COVID's on my bum. The website Medium uh, recommended a post to me this morning and it was an incredibly bleak uh, article that says all the following decades will be worse than this one due to climate change and the resulting collapse of infrastructure and society. And while it was a tad over the top, maybe, uh, I did also think, oh, well, we probably deserve it. I don't think I'd do well in a dystopian future, um, not just because I'm diabetic and need insulin. They don't even have crisps in a lot of them. I quite like sitting rather than running uh, away from big petrol guzzling machines in a desert. What am I talking about? I don't know. It's just nice to talk to people still, isn't it? What a novelty in 2020. Um, as is being one of the 7 million billion podcasters that currently exist. And knowing I have you lovely lot actually listening in. Um, it seems like most people I know now or have heard of uh, seem to have a podcast. I just keep thinking, ha, you idiots. I started this nearly four years ago, so I'm way ahead of you at shouting into the void. Uh, I guess you've got to be professional at something. Got to be experienced at something, I guess, haven't you? <laughs> um, big time thanks this week to Annika, who joined the Patreon. And um, thank you. And it should be any day now where they'll let me change uh, the account from dollars to pounds, which should make it easier for any of you Brits that are listening um, or anyone else in the world, as our currency becomes worth less than mud. And when it does, I will take mud donations, of course. Um, anyway, you two can sign up to that at patreon.com forward slash bro. should you wish to support me and the podcast, mainly me. I make the podcast. It's, it's one and the same. You won't see us in the same room together. I mean, you will, because I'm recording it. That's confusing. Anyway, or donate at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro, which you can always do. And thank you this week to Christine, Daz, LJ, Somebody, Pablo and Mark for donating there. And you are all absolute champs for doing so. Um, Of course, if you can't donate, because you two, like me, now have no real purpose in life, um, then please do give the show a review on any of those podcast apps that are there. And maybe even just tell people about this so they too listen in. Uh, this week on Thursday the 9th of July uh, I'm doing an online gig called Comedy Roulette which is hosted by the excellent Vix Layton and that'll be on twitch.tv forward slash Neon Mingo and the link will be in the podcast blurb too um, I believe we're just given random subjects and have to be funny about it which sounds fun and also terrifying uh, and that starts at 7.30pm please uh, have a watch um, and on Friday I'm going to attempt another go at doing a live podcast at 8pm on Ramble FM um, I've popped the link in this podcast blurb again and I'll be posting about it nearer the time on all the social medias too and um, please listen but also call in if you can um, mainly because I'd like to talk to another adult but also we could have some fun chats about uh, Rishi Sunak's economic statement that he's going to announce on Wednesday or you know maybe something actually fun and enjoyable in life um, hopefully uh, it will all work this time so do keep your eye out for that um, don't forget July the 16th I'm supporting Shappy Sandy at the drive-in gig in uh, near Brink Cross which I drove past the other day and wow it looks bleak um, and lastly I think I've got about two more of these podcasts in my energy banks before I need a little break for my own sanity um, I will try not to go away for too long but it is becoming tricky working out every week how to make a joke about Boris Johnson saying something then doing the exact opposite a day or so later um, and also about how everything is terrible it's basically the same every week different things are happening they're all the same things um, I usually have a break about this time of year due to you know people going on holidays or 
I'm in Edinburgh or just because the room that I do this in gets incredibly hot and uh, I melt when I put the headphones on. Um, I understand this year is different though, not least because the weather's shit. Um, so I'm going to see how it goes. I'll try not to abandon you, but I may take a couple of weeks off in a few weeks' time and then might do some mini episodes through August of just the comedy intro bit and nothing else. Uh, let me know what you think. It's sort of hard to decide when best to do this when the last few years have been a solid, silly season um, throughout start to finish. Um, but let me know if me going will absolutely... Um, be the worst thing you've ever heard or if actually your ears need a break from my uh, just boring voice um, give me a shout right on this week's show I have Barrister Jeff Whelan talking about what coronavirus has done to the legal system and the courts and I'm going to tell you all about how Boris Johnson's new deal isn't get this actually new at all what yeah I know I mean who knew who knew yes everyone see what I mean don't even have a funny way to talk about it again here I've run out it's every week it's every week that happens every week it's incredible that the only certainty we have is that everything our Prime Minister Minister says it's likely to be bollocks. I've already used the doors in Labyrinth comparison too many times, and the boy who cried wolf, and many others. It's getting to the point where I need other people to be total shit rags just so I can liken them to a Boris Johnson. Ugh. The coronavirus hasn't been easy for the legal sector at all. I mean, it's hard enough for detectives like, say, Hercule Poirot to gather everyone together to explain who the killer is, as they'd already be so far away from him they'd probably have legged it before he'd managed to explain why the butler didn't do it as they were quarantined in the kitchen. But in the real life, justice is more blind than ever, as a lot of criminal trials in particular aren't getting to see their day in court. It's not really possible to have a jury of people sit together and discuss whether they think a defendant is guilty or not, and it doesn't really work for discretion if you're having to shout your reasoning across a park. There is currently a backlog of over 40,000 criminal cases that have absolutely nowhere to go, which is unfair on victims, defendants and indeed barristers who get paid by taking on cases, but can't because technically right now all cases are rested. This isn't just coronavirus's fault, of course, but much like with many other sectors, if you collect all the evidence, you'll find it's just an accomplice to years of the government deciding legal aid could be removed from those who need it and court spaces sold off. While Batman says justice never sleeps, there's quite a lot of people in former courtrooms that are now luxury flats and are snoozing pretty well on its remnants. So, what are the government's proposals to sort out this backlog? Well, so far, they've included flouting the idea that trials could happen without juries, because nothing sounds more sensible than allowing largely unrepresentative judges to become judge, jury and, well, God knows where that will lead. Luckily, that idea seems to have disappeared. But what else? Can you have a virtual courtroom? And how could you tell if the jury are paying attention or missing vital evidence while checking Twitter on a different tab? What if witnesses can't work out how to unmute themselves and there are decisions of undue influence as the defendant's kids have changed their background to something from Despicable Me? This week I spoke to Jeff Whelan, a barrister in Manchester who's on the criminal team at the 9 St John Street Chambers. As in the team of barristers who deal with criminal cases, not like an arch-villain member of a criminal team that they consult for tips, which would be quite cool. Sorry, awful. I meant awful. Anyway, Jeff has over 20 years at the bar. Again, as in council, not as in drink. You get it. Anyway, working on a wide range of serious criminal cases. He's also led events for the sceptics in the pub group about different aspects of the law, and I was very pleased that he had time to explain to me just what is or rather isn't happening in the legal system right now, what needs to happen to fix the case's backlog, and whether he bothers to wear a whole suit when he attends settlement hearings. I hope you enjoy. Here is Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Um, thanks tons for joining me today. And uh, I mean, much like so many areas that I mentioned on this podcast, I haven't got a clue about the legal system. Um, but I understand that there are quite a lot of constitutional changes that are either being proposed or that are being pushed through 
during the coronavirus uh, legislation, during this crisis. Um, can you give us a rundown of what those are and how concerned we should be about them? Uh, OK, right. Well, um, starting from the top, the, the biggie was that there was a suggestion um, and uh, it was a pretty big suggestion from a number of people that the right to a jury trial was going to be curtailed. Um, now, we, we've had jury trials in this country for quite a number of years. And uh, a, a quick Google, because uh, I don't pretend to be a legal historian, <laughs> but a quick Google will suggest that it goes all the way back to something that even frothing Brexiters would be uh, particularly um, annoyed about if you tinkered with. Uh, and it's the Magna Carta back in 1215 uh, that uh, the, the right was apparently established. Um, and actually, a slightly deeper Google goes back uh, even further and suggests that it wasn't Magna Carta that set in this uh, right to a jury trial. It was because of the Pope, uh, because wow. he didn't like the fact that um, religion was being dragged into disrepute by uh, trial by ordeal. Um, I bet you didn't expect to hear all this this evening. <laughs> um, so it, in effect, the Pope said, hang on, we're, we're withdrawing the, um, the, the the clerics from these trials because um, lots of people have been unjustly um, drowned and, and what have you. So uh, we're having no part in it. So as a, as a replacement, they, they came in with the jury of your peers. And uh, it, it's took on uh, since then. And it's more recently that it's, it's really taken off as, uh, as basically the gold standard of justice. Um, it, it's, it's where guilt and innocence are decided by uh, people like you, people like me, everyday people uh, from across the country, from all backgrounds, all races, all colours, all creeds, uh, all equally eligible to serve on a jury. And uh, the proposals that we've got or were floated very recently by the uh, Lord Chancellor and the Lord Chief Justice were that there was going to be a restriction on them. Now, I, 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 it's not hyperbole to say that this is going to be or would have been one of the biggest constitutional changes to criminal law in hundreds of years. It's basically talking about removing or restricting the right to a jury trial, one that's existed, as I say, for hundreds of years. Now, um, they floated this before they put forward the concrete proposals. Uh, and the reason they're doing it is because coronavirus makes trials difficult. If you just imagine you sat in a courtroom and you've got 12 members of the jury sat next to each other, listening to people talk loudly, uh, as I'm doing now. Um, and you've got a judge telling everybody to speak up and you're in a courtroom that's not particularly well ventilated. And then you've got to throw in two metre social distancing or one metre plus, whatever rules are going to apply, um, it's, it, it's made jury trials utterly impracticable in most of, court, most of the courtrooms up and down the country. Um, the, there's a few that have taken off um, and they've basically been run as pilots. So there's, there's a handful of courts that have been able to run trials for maybe the past three or four weeks. But the resources that those courts are now taking are such that you're not going to get anywhere near the throughput of trials that you had pre these coronavirus restrictions. So to, to give another example, to run one trial in a court near me, uh, Minchell Street in Manchester, it's taking three courtrooms where you can have one courtroom for the, the trial itself. And you've got to have everybody spaced out in that courtroom. 
Um, limited number of people are allowed into that courtroom. So you've got another courtroom um, where the, there's a remote link, a video link, where members of the public and supporters, for example, of either the prosecution or, de or the defence can sit and watch. And then you've got to have another courtroom still where the jury can go and deliberate. So, so the big problem is um, coronavirus means our courts can't run like they used to run. They just can't. Um, so the, um, the proposals are, well, what can we do in the meantime to try and make justice run uh, a little bit more smoothly? And uh, as I say, the Lord Chief Justice and, and uh, the Lord Chancellor said, well, here are some proposals. And I think about a week ago, he said he had three. Uh, he said one of them was to reduce the right to a jury trial. And he was suggesting that you would get a judge and two magistrates who would determine guilt. Uh, another proposal he had was that he said that you could have uh, what we call Nightingale courts. We call them that. That's what uh, everybody. Uh, but I think the, the, the Lord Chancellor prefers the name uh, Black, uh, Blackstone Courts just because that's a, some old legal fuddy-duddy from years ago. Is that, Nightingale, um, that's basic. Is that, is that uh, Nightingale after the hospital that was opened up? That's yeah, yeah. Uh, Nightingale didn't really have a lot to do with, uh, with courts. <laughs> no, no. But I, I, think, I think Nightingale is a name that the government wants to put in front of something that they do as an emergency and take over a big space. So um, instead of the Nightingale hospitals, you'll have these Blackstone courts and they'll go in and they'll say, um, what convention centre have you got near you that we can temporarily use to, uh, to use as a courtroom so that we can have social distancing because you need big spaces for these, these trials. Um, and his other proposal was, was back to jury trial again, saying, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll continue with jury trials but will reduce the number in the jury so that you get seven members of the jury as opposed to the 12 that we've got now. So all of those proposals were floated. And I think yesterday he appeared uh, and put forward a, a written statement to the House of Commons. And there was absolutely no mention whatsoever of the removal of the right to jury trial. Now, yeah. I wonder whether that might have been something to do with um, the Criminal Bar Association, uh, because last week uh, we all got surveyed, all, all the barristers who do uh, crim uh, criminal trials, we got surveyed to say, um, which of these proposals do you like? You know, which can you get behind? Um, how do you feel about the restrictions on the right to jury trial? And um, and there was, there was apparently a very huge uh, response to it. And, um, I'll, I'll not beat about the bush. Uh, we've not had a very good time of it recently because we work by being in court and we're not in court and we get paid when we do trials and we're not doing trials. So we want the criminal justice system to be uh, up and running again. We want it to work. Um, so you'd think that, you know, these hungry barristers, um, uh, I'm not being flippant here because genuinely there, there are plenty who are, uh, are in real dire straits because they're not earning through this pandemic, you might expect them to say, all right, well, you know, we, we, we're not that bothered about uh, rights of the defendants. Uh, as long as we get paid, we, we don't care. Um, that, that's, in fairness, a, a criticism that lawyers come out uh, or suffer a lot. Um, and if you believe that, you might be rather surprised to find that when the Criminal Bar Association did their survey, 93% of the respondents to that survey said 
they would be opposed to any restriction on jury trials whatsoever. 93%. So that was last week. And today we hear no, or yesterday rather, we hear no mention from the Lord Chancellor, the Justice Secretary, Robert Buckland QC, no mention at all of removal or restriction of the right to a jury trial. Wow. So, I mean, that's amazing. I'm also slightly worried who the 7% are and whether we should be avoiding them if anyone needs legal help. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want them to represent you if you get in trouble. Absolutely not. Not anymore, no. Um, but uh, so so that means that probably on the table is maybe having emergency court buildings, nice Blackstone buildings. And is that, yep, yep. would that be an issue too? Because uh, I guess courthouses are designed in a certain way. Are there issues with the jury accidentally meeting defendants or, you know, if they're in spaces that they, that aren't set up for, for, you know, the different groups to be separated? Um, uh, uh, being blunt, we, we need a massive expansion of space. Um, if we're going to have socially distant trials, which we've got to do because otherwise we're sitting on a ticking time bomb, You've got something like a jail population at the moment of 85,000. If you're not running trials, then you're going to get an awful lot of defendants who are on remand. And in the meantime, whilst you're still not running trials, you're still going to get serious crimes happening. We might have a few this weekend after the pubs reopen and a few people get glassed or stabbed or whatever. And you'll get people being wrapped up in jail and you're not getting any coming out the other side necessarily because you're not having trials where people are either found to be guilty or found to be not guilty. So the backlog will build up. Now we're at, I think, uh, a backlog. Uh, sorry, a, a backlog of, of way over forty thousand. Um, sorry, I think it's about forty thousand in, in the Crown Court at the moment, um, and it, it, it's only going to get worse. Uh, it's it's not the worst backlog that we've had. Incidentally, it was worse back in um, I think two thousand and fifteen. Uh, when we had uh, the austerity kicking in and, you know, nobody was crying out then for the reduction of jury um, trials. So uh, it, it's only now, because I'll be honest, uh, the, the, the initial proposal to uh, reduce the right to jury trials is something that some governments have been after before because it's cheaper uh, and uh, they, they think you'll get more convictions if you don't have juries. They probably would, uh, would which is a good reason to carry on with juries because they, they will give you a fair view of the evidence, not some case hardened judge. Um, so uh, the, uh, anyway, back to, back to the main point, the, um, the system will without trials absolutely uh, grind to a halt. So we need space. We need bigger places. Um, we, we need convention centers. We need um, I know uh, university lecture halls, anything that can be repurposed as a big space that can run a trial. That's what we need. And I think we're going to need them in large numbers. At the moment, the Ministry of Justice has identified 10 sites. And that's it. That is a drop in the ocean. 10 sites wow. around the country. That's, I mean, um, that's it's not enough. It, it is not enough. Um, so much more work needs to be done on that. And he can absolutely count on the support of the bar if he says, all right, well, we'll open up all these various different places. Um, it's just a shame that since 2010, half of the quarter state was sold off because they said we didn't need it. Times of austerity. Um, we don't need such a large quarter state. Well, it turns out we do. 
and those buildings that have been sold could have been used, but they're not available because they're now fancy wine bars or flats or whatever. Um, so that, that's the position we find ourselves in. The, the, the reality is we've had backlogs before and the problem has been a lack of money. Coronavirus has just brought a, a focus onto where we are. It's, it's no different to where we were in the mid 2000, around about 2015. The backlog just before Christmas was 39,000. We've gone to 41,000 something now. Um, so why was it a problem? Or why wasn't it a problem before Christmas? But it is a problem now. So uh, a couple of questions there. What happened in 2015 when there was a bigger backlog? And I, I suppose the other question is that obviously court spaces has, has been an issue for years uh, because of the selling off of all, all the legal buildings. Um, but is there another reason why there's so many, why there's such a backlog at, at the moment? Is there yeah. what, what's causing this many cases to kind of be stuck it, in the It tone? can boil down to one word and it is money. And I'm afraid that there have been in recent years um, and I and my colleagues and everyone have experienced this. We go to courts every day. And, for example, my local town, Manchester, you'll go to there's two main crown courts. One's got about 14 or 15 courts. One's got 10. On any given day before the coronavirus problem, you could walk in and you could see three or four of those courts, possibly even more was simply not sitting. There was no judge. There was no usher. There was no case going on in that, in that particular courtroom. It's there. It's physically available to be used. But the Ministry of Justice cut down on what we call sitting days, which is the amount of days that each court centre is permitted to have a judge sit on a trial or any case. And if you cut down on sitting days, then that means you're not going to be able to cover the same amount of court cases. So you're going to get a backlog. So it's money. It's simply because they didn't want to pay um, some part-time judges called recorders to, to go in and, and do these cases and get rid of the backlog because it costs money. So we are where we are because of austerity. And the focus is now because of coronavirus. It's not the cause. It's just shown how bad the system has been. We're already broken. It's just now people are looking at us and saying, you look a bit broken. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we'll be back with Jeff in a minute. But first... I'm not sure if you watched Boris Johnson's speech last week because it's likely you had much better things to do like run repeatedly into a tree or try and eat a lamppost. If you did though, you'll have heard a whole ton of unimpressive waffle about all these new plans for a post-corona UK, which I guess means we might finally get to see them in 2050 or thereabouts. There were warnings that the recession we're driving into will be worse than the 2008 one, that there'll be a reform of social care, which is a nice way of saying they'll probably sell it all off, and apprenticeships for every young person because otherwise you might have to pay them for work. He also wouldn't promise a pay rise for the NHS because they've saved his life now and he's done a clap or two, so what else do they want? There's also lots of hints about tax rises and maybe even tax cuts if they're his friends. And we'll know a lot more this week after Rishi Sunak's statement on Wednesday. But for now, these new plans are all banded together with Johnson's calls to be ambitious about the UK's future, which means perhaps we can conceive of getting rid of him at some point soon. But actually, nothing he announced really was ambitious as such, and instead was a lot more just things he'd said earlier in the year or in the Conservative manifesto before the election, but has since rewrapped them and said they're new and hope no one will notice the teeth mark in them. For example, Johnson said there would be a 12.2 billion affordable homes programme, supporting up to 180,000 new affordable homes over eight years. Except this was announced back in March, when it was launched as being over five years, so technically this is a cut, with less money per year than before. The Ministry of Housing swear it isn't a cut, but the fund is for over five years, and the building of homes will be for over eight, so maybe they're just working in the time that it'll take to get rid of all the details about what money they let Richard Desmond avoid paying this time. Even in March, the 12.2 billion fund wasn't all new, with £9.5 billion being shiny dosh, but the rest being reallocated from existing building funds that they hadn't done anything with. I mean, there's something to be said for refurbishing building funds so they're now usable, but it's not really a new programme if it's the same old programme but on later and for longer. They do that with TV shows and they just call it a repeat with extra bits. There was the announcement again that they'll build 40 new hospitals, which is the same thing they said in the election campaign, and it was proved untrue then too. It's actually six hospitals that have been given money to upgrade, and 38 others that have been allocated money to do some building work between 2025 and 2030. So not new hospitals, but new bits of old hospitals and maybe some nice paintwork. Honestly, if the government were a car dealership, they'd have terrible Google ratings from people who bought a new car and felt cheated when they discovered it was an old car with an IOU note promising to buy a new exhaust in five years' time. Back when it was originally announced, Johnson also said it was £1.8 billion of new funding, but actually it was money NHS trusts had already been given and were told they couldn't spend just yet. But I mean, I'm glad they waited to allocate it until after the coronavirus, otherwise it might have been wasted saving lives, eh? Eh? As well as old bits presented as new, there are new bits that are just shit. For example, Johnson said there'd be 30% off new homes for first-time buyers, but that will only include 1,500 homes to begin with, and then they'd have to build them first. So considering stamp duty might disappear for six months, which will cause a stall and then demand in the market, upping all the house prices, that 30% off might mean it'll only bankrupt you twice to get somewhere that Richard Desmond has probably built using some supplies he got at a sale. Johnson also announced plans to rip up planning regulations, meaning that commercial properties could become residential properties without much planning permission needed. What that means is it's likely you'll be sleeping in a box room in a former call centre that hasn't got working electrics and no one can do anything about it. 
Johnson said it was to stop nuke counting by eco-campaigners, which is not really a great message for any hopes of a greener country, especially as it means less protection for green areas and lower environmental standards too. Basically, it just allows wealthy developers to cut costs and build windowless human filing cabinets out of unsuitable properties. Then again, I guess if the air pollution is really bad due to the environmental destruction, a lack of windows isn't such a bad thing. But for every shoebox a family is shoved into, I'm sure Rich Desmond will donate to the Tory party and allow Robert Jenrick to sit on his lap for at least 10 minutes. Johnson announced a social care plan that they won't wait to fix, but earlier this year they actually said they planned to do it by the end of 2020, and then Matt Hancock announced actually it probably won't arrive till 2024. Now Johnson's saying it's all care homes' fault that there were so many deaths, chances are the plan will be for Richard Desmond to turn all the care homes into luxury coffin-shaped flats for people to squish into, and social care will be largely neglected all over again. It's also worth noting that Johnson's plan overall is for £5 billion of spending projects, but that's a drop in the ocean of money spent on the support packages for coronavirus bailouts. So far, the furlough scheme has cost over £25 billion, and the business loan scheme is nearly £43 billion, and Crossrail will cost £18 billion, and HS2 over £100 billion, so really in terms of infrastructure, £5 billion isn't that much, and will probably only really amount to putting a load of neon signs saying new in front of existing buildings. Then there was Johnson's promise of an opportunity guarantee, meaning that every young person will be given an apprenticeship or work placement, which details say can last from six weeks to six months and will include a maximum of 240 hours work, which won't be paid. Free skills training is great, but I'm not entirely sure that a whole generation of young people want to come out of job losses in a recession to be told they can work for the experience. There's also no details yet on if it includes current year 13 or year 11 school leavers, or if it will take so long to come into place that it'll only benefit their grandchildren. But what did you expect from a Prime Minister who used to write a new after-dinner speech for every occasion that had the exact same three stories in? As with everything, we'll have to wait and see. You never know, I may be so inspired by what Rishi Sunak announces on Wednesday that I may write a whole new bit about it, which will be exactly the same as this bit, but with less jokes and I'll really slur on my words so it takes ages. And now, back to Jeff. So, so is the main difference? I mean, it, it's frightening hearing you say that. That is the same with you know we've seen the same with the NHS. We see the same with every kind of public sector, yeah. um, with every important sector in the UK at the moment. But what was the what was, is the main difference between now and say twenty fifteen when the backlog was massive? Is that just that there's even less money now, or are there other differences as well? Um, well, the money difference has been a problem for for a very very long time and uh, i think structurally they've just been able the, the government's just been able to say um we can cope with a certain amount of backlog and we can cope with a certain amount of complaints from lawyers uh we don't often go on strike um we're, we're, we're self-employed so you know we don't work we don't get paid uh it has happened in recent memory that we have gone on strike when the government's tried to take away um you know the the, the rights of, of people and uh, they've tried to say, right, well, we want you lot to work for basically um, next to nothing. You know, maybe 10 years without a rise is something to, to get people a bit annoyed. And uh, we, we, we've been a little annoyed about that in the past. But the government just, in fairness, will, will do the least possible to make the system work. And uh, they won't put any more money in than they think they can get away with. So we, we don't have the gold standard anymore not in criminal justice not with backlogs that we were seeing and not when we've got trials that are being fixed way off into the future um it, 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 the system requires investment it really does and it's been starved of it for years 
do you sort of feel because it's it's really felt like as you said for years they've really neglected uh, the the legal system, but our particular this particular government who. Uh, you know, we're told by the Supreme Court they're being unlawful and then they sort of ignored that. And then we've had the Dominic Cummings case recently that's, uh, oh, you know, he breached the law, but we'll sort of ignore it. And it, it feels like yeah. a, there's a real, I, I suppose the word is just disrespect uh, for the legal system from this this current budget. Is, is that, that, that must be really affecting morale uh, in the legal oh, sector. Well, Are you feeling well, it I mean, colleagues? Or? Um, I, yes, yeah, we, we are. Morale has, has absolutely been... Uh, hammered uh, in, in recent years. Um, I, I mean, Brexit has an indirect effect on criminal justice, and um, you know, there's not a lot that we can do about it uh, as lawyers. Um, and the Supreme Court decision that you referred to, it was shocking to see a front page from the Daily Mail describing our top judges as enemies of the people and for then the attorney general to be completely silent about it was an utter disgrace and also when you mentioned Dominic Cummings for a a different attorney general to say oh well yes it sounds to me like he's got a perfectly good defense is completely ignoring the historic requirements of neutrality of being an attorney general it's almost as if they're not that bothered about the rule of law. They just want to get their own way. So they had a big fib amongst Brexit, which was take back control. We'll have things decided in British courts by British judges. Well, yeah, until they disagree with us. And then we'll have a go at them as well. So I'm afraid we're seeing politically uh, attacks on what, what should be uh, the best justice system in the world. Uh, we, we've got a very long history, and, and that tradition is something that, as a country, we should be rightly proud of. And they are trashing it for ideological reasons, in, in many examples. Um, not, not across the board, but in many ways, for, it, as I say, the, the Attorney General um, messing up um, a few comments here and there. Uh, and you know, they'll always get their friends in the press to side with them and have a go at judges who, in fairness, are doing their job and they are deciding questions of law. So don't have a go at the judges for neutrality. They're doing exactly what they are there to do and they're doing it properly. So what's the way in which, uh, well, I mean, actually, I suppose I should ask, you know, is there anything that courts are doing now? Because I, I'm, have any been like run virtually? Have, have there any been that sort of run i don't know yeah, yeah. across zoom um, has that been happening yeah well well not not across zoom i, I know we're, we're, we're having this chat across zoom <laughs> but i don't believe there's any security implications with uh, uh, yes. we're doing a podcast on zoom um we have used a number of video platforms and and i'll, I'll pause because this is where i i will give credit to the ministry of justice um we have rapidly we've seen a rapid rollout of um, video hearings. We've used Skype for Business. We've used something called Cloud Video Platform. Um, we've used some telephone system, Meet Me on BT and so on. Different areas have been doing different things. And the system has worked as best it can in this epidemic. So I've been dialing through to courts which are almost 100 miles away. 
and I've been appearing on a live link uh, and I've had uh, I've been prosecuting cases where defendants have been dialed in from prisons, which are another 50 miles away again. And the defence counsel have dialed in and the judge is there in court. So we're having exactly the same hearing with everybody able to contribute with one or two technical hitches, which are understandable. But everybody's there and we haven't had to travel. We can do it. I've done it from this room without the, the paper in the background. <laughs> uh, for um, the listeners, I should just say that Jeff has a Judge Dredd picture in the background, which <laughs> I think for somebody in the legal sector is perfect. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but, but oddly enough, I, I will take that down on any any video. I haven't done, I haven't set foot in a courtroom yet since mid-March. And I've still done cases, um, not as many, because we're not doing trials, but I've been able to uh, do sentences. I've been able to do all sorts of uh, interlocutory hearings all over uh, Skype, and they have worked wonderfully. Now, if you just step back for a minute and just ignore my own personal convenience of being able to you know, brush my teeth and then come downstairs and, and, and be in court in two minutes, you're not actually having a large section of the population using transport. You're not, we're not driving. Um, we're uh, not circulating in a courtroom where there would be a risk of tra- transmission of coronavirus. Um, we've got a much better work-life balance, everybody, so not just me. So th- th- there are some positives that can come out of this. So if the Ministry of Justice can, can see that these video hearings can work and they work well, let's carry on doing them. Now, it won't work in every hearing. Certainly not. You can't do trials about uh, on a live link. That would simply not work. Um, I think there was some idea where you could have jurors on, on Zoom. Not possible, because you've got to have a judge who keeps control of proceedings. Not going to be able to do that if, you know, the, the cat's running in and going all over the mall. Somebody's <laughs> coming in wanting more to do chocolate digestives or, or whatever. Um, so you, you can't have zo- uh, juries with Zoom. You've got to have that in a building, which is why the only real solution is big buildings for that. Everything else, all the other hearings that happen in between, we can perfectly do um, on uh, these video things like Skype and Zoom and so on. So, uh, well, a couple of things. Firstly, do you still wear a suit even when you do it uh, on the on video like this or you, do you have to, you have to uh, can you wear pajamas um, to court or is it well um, <laughs> you you can see the top half of me uh and i i will go so far as to say that <laughs> i am fully dressed for court in the top half <laughs> brilliant brilliant um that's why it's a much better way definitely um yeah. and the, the the other thing is really um how do people support this because obviously um obviously Despite the fact that non jury free trials are now maybe not being discussed, which is a very very good thing, but a lot of these changes will have implications for anyone that will need the law or come up against it or whatever in the future. Whether you're defendant accused, wherever you sit, um, it affects the country. And how can people support this? Because you've got the bar, you've got your industry uh, making statements, but how do the listeners of this podcast, how do the general public? say stop messing with the, stop messing with the legal system give them more spaces what can we do um well please you know say say to the uh, your mp the government whatever say give them the the whatever spare conference centers are, are, are running universities i understand aren't going to be up um, anywhere near full capacity soon they've got loads of lecture halls we'll use them if we can get trials up and running we can make a dent in this backlog and a backlog is bad 
because we're almost at the limit of prison population numbers in this country already. And unless you're going to have a massive prison building population just because of Corona, sorry, massive prison building program just because of coronavirus, then we're going to get overcrowding soon. They're already, as I understand it, locked up 23 and a half hours a day. Now, you're going to have uh, real issues in uh, prisons soon. And if you're already cramming more numbers into that, in a, a system that's close to breaking point. I mean, they're as bad as, as the courts. Prisons, I mean, they're, they're, they're having a bad time with coronavirus as well. So it's a pressure cooker. You put more stuff in, it's going to explode. Let's take some of that pressure off if we can. Let's get these courts up and running, these Nightingale courts or these Blackstone courts. Get some more buildings open. Let's do it properly. Let's do it socially distanced. Um, let's do it in the best and safest way we can and ensure that our system keeps on working. Um, and actually, just quickly, that was one of the things the Ministry of Justice did announce, wasn't it? That they're going to, rather than focus on new buildings for courts, or um, and you mentioned universities, theatres. Theatres are desperate to be filled at the moment. They'd be brilliant for courtrooms. Yeah. Um, I, I had some friends today who said that the Royal Exchange in Manchester yeah. is really struggling. And uh, somebody said, well, you know, need to tell the, the, the Lord Chief Justice and the uh, the Lord Chancellor, get them to hire it as a court. And my, my friend said, uh, oh, I would absolutely love to give a closing speech from centre stage. The, uh, <laughs> It'd be amazing. Um, yeah, I, I'd be up for that. So please, you know, there's an idea. Robert Buckland, please go and hire the Royal Exchange in Manchester, the Manchester Bar would absolutely applaud you for it. It was, I, I mean, I, I've, I've performed there and I can say that it is a joy. Seriously, you'd have a lot of fun. Um, but that's, you know, that's the thing that Ministry of Justice have announced this week is rather than saying, here's the spaces for you, here's the money we're putting in, they said they're opening four new prisons. Is that a welcome announcement or is it just sort of, uh, you know, it, aside from them not uh, putting the money perhaps where it should be to court spaces, it, it, are four new prisons needed? No, I don't think so. Um, my, my per, this is a personal view. Uh, my personal view is I think we've already got one of the, the, the highest levels of uh, prison populations in Europe, as we are. I don't think um, we're going to solve things just by building more prisons. I think you need to look at alternatives. I don't think everybody's in prison necessarily needs to be there. But we do have uh, a view in this country that uh, prison is sometimes the only answer. Now, there's a lot of judges who, who would absolutely disagree and they will explore whatever alternatives are available and they will bend over backwards. And if they think there's merit in a defendant not going to jail, they will take that chance and they'll say, there you go, um, prove me wrong, have a suspended sentence. Um, I think we, we should probably look, because of the current epidemic, at uh, releasing some non-violent uh, prisoners, um, looking properly at their cases to see um, wh whether they're appropriate for release at an early stage. Uh, and let's do something to ease those numbers. It's not my area of expertise, um, I I'll be brutally honest, but you, you don't need to be an expert to see that you can't keep putting bigger numbers in where the capacity is so close to being reached. Yeah, we've had uh, we have had uh, Emma McClure on this podcast before talking about the um, incredible issues with the uh, rehabilitation system after the wonderful Chris Grayling was uh, 
the the man who I believe is like the opposite of King Midas, um, and uh, <laughs> it just everything he touches turned to absolute shit. Um, but yeah, yeah. I'll probably not get into a lot of trouble for saying he was possibly the worst Lord Chancellor ever. Which is incredible. Is it? After following Michael Gove, that's, I mean, I just think it's. Um, oh no, Michael Gove followed him and then reversed his, reversed what he did. And, and it's incredible, incredible to have Michael Chris Gove disagree with you. Michael Gove look good. Yeah, I mean that's that's. Just, just let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> Michael Gove look. Good. I still think that's incredible. It is incredible. Um, cool. Well, thank you so much for this, Jeff. It's been fascinating talking to you. And and I suppose that the the last question, which is something I ask all the guests on this podcast, which is simply that apart from yourself uh, and your Twitter, um, who should listeners follow or read up on, or what campaigns, what sites should they go to for proper info about the the legal sector and and politics to do with the justice system? Uh, I'll, I'll just I'll just name a few on Twitter then. Um, David Allen Green is always worth uh, a follow. Um, he's he's very detailed, very incisive, uh, well worth a read. Um, secret Barrister, obviously. Um, I, I am not Secret Barrister. Uh, just, <laughs> just in case. I, I, I'm on Twitter as Keep It Brief. If people want to follow me, I don't tweet anywhere near as detailed or as incisive or, or indeed as informative as any of the other people I'm going to mention. Um, I, I just whinge occasionally. So if you want to see me whinging, follow me. Um, the, I, I've got other colleagues at 9 St. John Street. Just just have a search for, for that tag and um, I'm, I'm sure they'll all come up. Uh, there's Barrister Blogger um, and um, Shit Barrister as well. Seriously, <laughs> I don't follow Shit Barrister, that, but I'm instantly that doing that now. Fun. Big thank yous to Jeff for that. Um, you can find him on Twitter at keep underscore it underscore brief. See what he did there? I'm a fan. And if you are Manchester where need legal rep, do check out the Nine Cent John Street Barrister Chambers, who are also on Twitter at Nine Cent John Street. Who else's face sounds do you need to hear on this show to enlighten your brain diodes? What other political subjects or issues do I need to ask someone about because I don't have a clue, um, but also you'd like to know about it too, or at the very least hear me get schooled on. Let me know, and you can of course do that at Parpobro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could stand at a podium and shout the same interviewees I've already had on this show, but say new a lot and pretend you've come up with them all by yourself. But let me tell you, it won't work because I'm not fooled by... Oh, ambitious, you say? You're being ambitious? Oh, okay. No, wait, I'm not having it. Not having it. As always, probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. It is, of course, the end of the show, which regular listeners will know means that it's time for the legendary Pop Pol Bro Hot Pole Goss Fact, where I deliver to you a secret political gossip fact that very few on this earth know, mostly because I made it up in my head. So this week, as everyone questions if the government opened the pubs too soon, because making it a query rather than a statement makes it seem like there's still the possibility of hope, which politician made the biggest ever error of judgment? No, it wasn't the Athenian statesman and general Alcibiades who insisted it was a great idea for Athens to invade Sicily in the Peloponnesian War and then led the charge, lost really, really badly and defected to the Spartans because if you can't beat them, then join someone else who won't have heard how shit you are. Nor is it the former Prime Minister Theresa May when she decided to have a snap election in 2017 without stopping to consider that she was less personable than a walk-in meat freezer and lost her parliamentary majority. 
No, instead, the politician that made the biggest error of judgment ever is human pudding bowl and racist Winston Churchill, who just after his We Shall Fight Them on the Beaches speech had Thomas Cook on the phone telling him they'd had to cancel his all-inclusive holiday to Costa del Sol as they didn't want that sort of behaviour there. Let me tell you, his wife and kids were furious. Definitely true, Parpol bro, hot pole goss fact there. Definitely, definitely true. And if you enjoyed it and will shout it at someone across a socially distant pub as your gem of knowledge, don't, because shouting causes germs to fly with great and admirable speed. Instead, why not tell people what you know or even animals you're fond of to subscribe and listen to this here podcast? Maybe even do a review on the podcast apps or if you can, donate to the Kofi or Patreon sites as Oliver Dowden really hates my kind. Dankeschön to Acast, my brother-in-law sceptic, Cat Day and to Mushy Bees. And this will be back next week when Oliver Dowden announces that as part of the arts package, he and his colleagues will perform a live televised panto this Christmas. But anyone who shouts, oh no you didn't, will be banned and any calls of it's behind you will be responded to with, yes, and that's why we have to move on. Bye. This week's show is sponsored by brand new children's book, Rishi Sunak Saves the Day. A story that on the cover is an exciting adventure for all ages, but on the inside has several large pages missing, with extra content only available for extortionate fees, and a lot that you have to do all by yourself, but you'll only get credit for if you do it wrong. Rishi Sunak Saves the Day. Available ages after you needed it to be. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.